Hello, welcome to the Living Open podcast for mystics and seekers. I'm your host, Erin. I'm a Philly-based healing artist, and this episode of the podcast is with Abby Robbins on healing with the Enneagram. So I'll tell you about Abby and what we talked about, but I just wanted to say this conversation is so much about healing and shadow work and deepening understanding of yourself through the Enneagram and how yoga and embodiment practices support that journey. I learned about the Enneagram through my little sibling, Abby. Shout out to Abby, (laughs) who got really into it a few years ago. So they had my whole family figure out all of our types. Um, We've got a four, a six, an eight, a five, a nine, and a seven, which is me in my immediate family. So we've got all different types. Um, And what I've found in learning about the Enneagram, which to be clear, I share in this episode, I'm definitely a newbie to the Enneagram. I have not done a ton of deep work with it, but I have read a bit, um, particularly in this big book, the Wisdom of the Enneagram book. Um, I will try to remember to link to it in the description if you want to check it out. But what I've found in learning about the Enneagram and reading a bit about my type is that it's often confirming things that I've already learned about myself and not just the more positive things like Abby talks about in this episode, but some of the pieces that I've come to like through my healing journey. So I thought I would share two just short pieces in particular that have really dragged me (laughs) from the Wisdom of the Enneagram book. And if you're a seven too, maybe these will resonate or maybe this will just give you kind of a window into some of the things that you can learn about your type, about the different Enneagram types through books, and um, Abby talks a bunch more about that as well. But I'm just going to (laughs) share. So, sevens are compelled to stay on the go, moving from one experience to the next, searching for more stimulation. Sevens cope with the loss of essential guidance by using the trial and error method. They try everything to make sure they know what is best. On a very deep level, sevens do not feel that they can find what they really want in life. They therefore tend to try everything, and ultimately may even resort to anything as a substitute for what they are really looking for. In parentheses, if I can't have what will really satisfy me, I'll enjoy myself anyway. I'll have all kinds of experiences. That way I will not feel bad about not getting what I really want. Which is like, (laughs) damn. (laughs) Um, The other part I want to share is from the childhood pattern section. Um, The seven's childhood is flavored by a largely unconscious feeling of disconnection from the nurturing figure. Generally speaking, sevens are sensitive to a very deep frustration resulting from feelings of being cut off from maternal nurturance at an early age. This pattern does not mean that sevens were not close to their mothers in childhood, but on an emotional level, they unconsciously decided that they would have to take care of their own needs, which is quite accurate. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I think the Enneagram has a lot to teach us, and I also just think it's like pretty fucking cool. (laughs) Um, So I think personally that like if you're into astrology, which I think a lot of you are, I definitely am, obviously, Um, that this can be another similar but also very different tool that helps us learn more about ourselves and our patterns and why we are the way that we are, our gifts and our struggles, um, just another way of understanding those. So a little bit about Abby. Abby Robbins, who uses they-them pronouns, is a trained Enneagram teacher and yoga therapist. Their teaching combines the deep and transformative insight of the Enneagram with the holistic and down-to-earth practices of yoga therapy. Robbins seeks to share these two powerful systems to help people better understand themselves and those around them and live more fulfilling and meaningful lives. So we talk about their journey, of course, with yoga and with the Enneagram, cultivating resilience to do the work that you love, 
what the Enneagram is, what it can teach us about ourselves, how it can reveal our patterns to us, how it can help us learn compassion, Enneagram as a gateway into shadow work, how yoga and the Enneagram work together to support healing, how to find out your Enneagram, which it's not so simple as taking a quiz. Heavy will talk a lot about that. Um, their journey with the Enneagram and I was like, can you sort of use like yourself as a little case study and tell us about your type and what that means to you? So I really enjoyed hearing about that um, and how you move along the lines in the Enneagram, which if that doesn't make sense to you, Abby will explain what that means and what that has to do um, with growth and healing. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. I just wanted to share one announcement before we get into the interview. A lot of you have probably heard on Instagram or you probably know that this year is our collective Hierophant year, 2021. And if you don't know how these years are calculated, it's really simple. It's just each number added up. So 2021 is two plus two plus one, which equals five, which is the Hierophant. So I just wanted to share, <laughs> last year was my personal Hierophant year, and it was definitely a ride that was really focused around religious trauma and taking people off of pedestals and deconstructing hierarchical systems of authority and really reclaiming the right to think critically, to ask questions, to establish my own values, to believe whatever the fuck I want, whatever is true for me. And growing up in dogmatic religion, as I've talked about so many times on this show, has really had such far-reaching negative impacts for me on sexuality, uncertainty, um, personal power, self-esteem and worthiness, perfectionism, guilt, connection to my body, a sense of safety, and um, way more. <laughs> but that's just what's coming up right now. And I know I'm not alone in that. I think it does for many people in different ways. And whether you call it religious trauma or not, I think many of us really deeply struggle with the impacts of dogmatic religion and that's why I created the Religious Trauma Workbook and why I'm holding the breathwork and storytelling ceremony for ex-religious folks on January 14th at 7 p.m. Eastern as a space to share stories, to be seen in community, and to do some healing work through the body with breathwork so we can all feel a little more connected and a little more seen and a little more free. So I would love to see you in the class if that feels like it would support you. Your ticket comes with a copy of the Religious Trauma Workbook, which is a 110-page digital workbook full of prompts and reflections and meditations and somatic exercises and a few rituals to support you in healing religious trauma. So I'll put the link in the description if you want to come join or you could also just get the workbook alone if that feels good and you don't feel ready to sort of uh, be gathering with other people around this topic um but yeah it's this thursday so come join if you'd like and please enjoy this episode with abby so i would love to hear if you want to share about your journey to getting to where you are i'd love to hear how you found enneagram work and embodiment practices and yeah about the work that you do now sweet um yeah, I I I came into um, embodiment practices and yoga um, kind of about the same time that I was introduced to the Enneagram. Um, I had kind of, well, my life had sort of fallen apart, and I crash landed in a small town in Arkansas, uh, where I lived with my family for a little while, and uh, in in this small town and in the most bizarre of places. I, uh, I started a yoga practice. There was a studio in town in the, uh, basically in the backyard of, uh, one of the women in town. Um, she had a little guest house and had a studio back there. And, um, yeah, I, 
I started practicing yoga and while I was there, I found not only something that really like had a profound effect on me and the way that I was able to like function in my life, um, I found a really incredible community of people. And it was through that community that I, I, you know, I made the friendships and the relationships that really kind of allowed me to recover from this like crash landing. Um, and one of those was a very dear friend of mine who introduced me to the Enneagram. And so I'd been practicing yoga for um, maybe a couple weeks when, you know, we were hanging out and he was like, you're such an eight. And I'm like, I don't know what that means, but I'm pretty sure that's an insult. So fuck you. Um and and then it just kind of went from there. Like he shared more about what the Enneagram was and 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 that it wasn't an insult at that point in time, <laughs> um, which was great. But um, and, and what I noticed is that as because I'd kind of established this practice um, of embodiment work, this practice of moving and breathing, meditating like through yoga, um, the work that I was able to do with the Enneagram was so much more um, effective, <laughs> mm -hmm. for lack of a better word. Like it was really, um, I think in a lot of yoga kind of tilled the soil that allowed the Enneagram to really take root in my life and, um, you know, created a container that helped me to use this insight and, and have it be something that, uh, changed my life um you know I, I practiced yoga for a while um and then became a teacher and then became a yoga therapist which is like another whole like level of training and understanding around how to use yoga and um, how to practice it myself um and it was about in, it was kind of in the middle of that that um my partner was like you should teach this like I was in the middle of yoga therapy school and I was trying to like make it as a yoga teacher and trying to teach workshops and you know do the like private client thing and teach classes and um it, it was slow going and it was pretty hard um I had taught a bunch of workshops and they all sort of flopped and I was like man am I just in the wrong place am I doing the wrong thing and my partner was like you should you should teach the Enneagram and yoga because you're really passionate about these things. You know how they go together um, and people might be really interested in it. And I was like, nobody's going to know what the hell I'm talking about. There's no way people are going to be interested in that, but whatever, like, because you're pushing me to do it, I'll, I'll, I'll check it out. Um, and yeah, I taught my first workshop at a yoga studio here in Austin um, based on yoga and the Enneagram. And I'm, people loved it. Like the workshop was a huge success. And it was after that, that I was kind of like, Oh, maybe, maybe I found it. And, um, as I did, I realized really quickly that like, okay, this is happening. This is, this is, this is the, the trains leaving the station and I want to be on it. Um, and so I decided that I would go and get certified as a Enneagram teacher. You know, I was teaching really from my life experience, which I knew had a lot of value. Um, but I didn't have a lot of depth around a depth of understanding uh, yet. And so I really wanted to make sure that I was a well-rounded teacher and I could, I could speak to more than just kind of the basics of the types and some like yogic principles that were helpful, right? Like I wanted to really dive deep. So I did a, in the midst of yoga therapy school, I did an additional uh, three week training, um, nearly 300 hours of training to become a certified Enneagram teacher with a narrative tradition. Um, and basically after I got back from that, uh, training in California, uh, that's when I started conscious Enneagram and, um, started like my Instagram account and built my website and all that sort of stuff. And things have just sort of like taken off. Um, since then it's been, uh, sort of nonstop in a great, but sometimes also exhausting way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing all that. Um, yeah. I just want to pick up on something you said that really resonated about teaching yoga classes and workshops. And sometimes they would just like completely flop. No one would show up or whatever. And 
I used to teach yoga. I don't teach yoga anymore, but I remember so clearly in the beginning of teaching yoga for myself, like showing up all excited to like teach this class or this workshop that I had like planned out and I like couldn't wait to offer it. And then like no one comes or one person comes and then it's kind of awkward. And like, I just want to honor for people who are listening and also for myself and you that that can be part of the process, just like trying things out that yeah maybe they start working eventually and it just takes time and yeah that like cultivating resilience it feels like is part of that to me anyways of like yeah being what works and I'm gonna keep showing up and shifting and changing in whatever directions feel right but yeah thank you for sharing that yeah of course I feel like it's you know it's kind of equal parts like being willing to stay in the discomfort and the awkwardness of that kind of like startup phase um And also like knowing when it's time to shift and when it's time to, you know, adjust to something different. And I think discernment is such a big part of being able to discern, like, do I just need to stay in it and keep working and just, you know, work this thing or, you know, is this really a a sign or, you know, whatever that like I need to adjust and, you know, I think is, is hard a lot of times. Like, I feel really lucky that this one sort of just like worked out. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Um, Yeah. You're like, perfect. We're here. (laughs) Yeah. And of course there's a lot of work after that, but you know, it was, it was kind of, you know, being willing. And I think for me as a type eight, which I'm sure we'll like being willing to make that kind of shift, even though like, I wasn't particularly interested in doing it at first. Like I wasn't, um, I didn't think that it would work. I didn't, you know, like, but like being open enough to other people being open enough to the nudgings of the universe Mm. to try something different. I think, um, I mean, that was like definitely a point of growth for me. And so I like, yeah, that, that whole process is definitely challenging for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's part of the story and part of the experience. I think I want to ask just to like zoom out for a sec, what the Enneagram is. Okay. (laughs) A lot of people, (laughs) I'm like, I think a lot of people listening are very into like astrology and other ways of like kind of understanding this. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you think about these things, but I think about like astrology and Enneagram as being kind of connected in the way that they're ways of understanding ourselves. So like the idea behind them being similar, but I also don't know a ton about the Enneagram, which is why I'm like, so talking to you. (laughs) So yeah, I think, can we like start there with what is that? Yeah, for sure. Um, So I like to, you know, start out like the Enneagram is, um, or an Enneagram is a symbol, like an Enneagram is a symbol, um, a nine pointed star. And there is this kind of particular symbol, which I'm sure you can like have a link to a picture of. I know it's hard in a podcast situation. Like, <laughs> you can't just show it. It's like, it's this. Um, I think I have, oh, I was going to say I have this book next to me right now and I thought it might have a picture of it on it. Yeah, it does actually like oh. kind of near the bottom. It's got a little Enneagram on there. Yeah, so it's okay. that, that is the symbol and that is an Enneagram. Um, and that's kind of a particular one. Basically any nine pointed star is an Enneagram. Um, but this one in particular uh, was used for a really long time by a guy named G.I. Gurdjieff, who was an Armenian-born um, spiritual seeker, for lack of a word. Um, he developed a system of like personal work um, and like self-transformation, and he used that symbol uh, to he used it as sacred geometry. Um, you know, he found it, he, he wasn't really like forthcoming about where he found it. It was somewhere maybe in Egypt. Um, very, uh, this was like at the beginning of the um, 20th century. He was very hush hush about how he came about it. And so like, it's got these like mystical kind of shrouded in secrecy sort of, um, you know, background. But he taught this symbol as map for how all energy became manifest in the world, right? Mm -hmm. So like from the creation of the universe to, um, you know, the way that a seed becomes, a seedling becomes a plant and then bears fruit, right? He, um, all processes and all 
becoming and all existence, he kind of taught, come uh, follow this map, essentially. And um, he taught this in his um, school of personal development. And uh, he had a couple students. Um, he had one student in particular, Oscar Achazo, who um, took this and, and really kind of expounded on all of the ways that this comes into play, right? Like he, how it comes into play uh, in you know, childhood development. He talks about how it comes into play in the way that um, social movements happen. He talks, they call them Enneagons. That's all these different things that, you know, can happen from the Enneagram, right? You can map them all out. I and mean, then one of the things that he talked about was um, essentially personality. It was very loose. He didn't really have a, um, a great, uh, I, I, I don't, it wasn't very fleshed out. It was very bare bones, just kind of like, it also happens in people. Uh, but then it was one of his students, Claudio Naranjo, who was like, you're so right. Claudio Naranjo was the psychoanalyst and he saw it play out in the neuroses of his clients. Um, and so he got people talking. And then as they talked, he realized that they fit into one of these nine places. Um, and this was really the start of what we talk about now when we talk about the Enneagram um, for the, the hardcore students with the Enneagram of personality, because we know that the Enneagram also relates to all these other things. Um, but when we talk about the Enneagram of personality, we're talking about how these nine points, this kind of um, map of the universe plays out in human personality. Um, we talk about um, essentially each one of these nine types of people um, is motivated by something different. And these motivations kind of shape our behavior, especially early in life. Um, and then these behaviors become uh, habitual. They become patterned and essentially create our personality. Um, and so what the Enneagram shows us is kind of what we do when we're on autopilot and kind of what we are um, kind of unconsciously being motivated by and what we're unconsciously trying to get either from situations or from other people or from ourselves. And I think the Enneagram does a really good job of highlighting how, um, how that can go wrong. <laughs> Essentially, um, I mean, if you've if you've ever read an Enneagram book or you've um, you know talked to anyone who's you know, been in the Enneagram, like it, studying the Enneagram and learning your type is kind of um, can really feel like a punch in the gut. Um, it's it, it does not it, the Enneagram doesn't pull any punches. It's not always the um, the nicest or the most warm and fuzzy of the personality typing systems out there. Um, because it's showing us um, kind of in, in no lacking detail, the places where our patterns get in the way, the places where our patterns um, make us do things or, uh, you know, react in ways that we're not particularly proud of. Um, we'd rather hide. Um, I think the Enneagram at its best is, is kind of a gateway into shadow work. Um, looking at the parts of ourselves that we want the rest of the world to see. And um, from there, you know, like, yeah, it's kind of the Enneagram definitely shows you the worst parts about you. It's like, <laughs> here are all the ways you are an asshole. Um, and we are all assholes in nine different ways. <laughs> right. But like, here's your particular way. Um, but it also, it also does a really incredible job of, showing us like our superpowers, what we're best at. Um, and often it's really hard to tease apart the which we are great from the ways in which we are awful. Um, you know, several people talk about, you know, your greatest blessing is also your greatest curse, right? Like, um, yeah, any superpower is great, but if you overuse it, it becomes a problem. Um, and so the Enneagram shows us really in, in very high detail that where we fall short, where we screw up, where we're total jerks and 
all the reasons why people don't like us, but it also shows us all of the best things about ourselves, all of um, you know what we can really be when we allow ourselves to be present and conscious of who we are and of other people. Um, and I think it's this kind of beautiful combination of the two, right? Of showing both the dark and the light and everything in between of our personalities that, that we learn, we learn compassion, um, you know, by, by engaging with all of our own darkest shit, we can learn how to be compassionate for other people's stuff, right? Because we know that we have our shortcomings, we have our own issues. Um, and when we study the Enneagram and learn what the other types are like, we, we gain so much understanding, like, oh, you know, reading about this other type, like I see my relationship with my ex, or I see my relationship with my parents, or I see my relationship with my friends. And, and suddenly I understand where those people are coming from, where before these disagreements, these conflicts, these struggles were not, um, they didn't make any sense, right? That's like, oh, why would you act that way? And the Enneagram's like, well, this is why they would act that way. You know, they might do this. We're doing this. And you're like, oh, oh, okay. So, you know, the Enneagram in, in summary <laughs> is, uh, it's a personality typing system. It shows us what we're motivated by and how that makes us incredible people and how that makes us total shitheads and um, kind of gives us the path to walk of essentially being a shithead probably less of the time um, or at least being more conscious of when those things are happening um, and how to really leverage our gifts so that, you know, the really beautiful things we can offer the world can come through. I'm wondering how yoga and embodiment come into this when you were talking about Enneagram showing us all the kind of worst parts of ourselves and shame that can come up around with that I automatically yeah. feel like oh that must be where yoga and embodiment practice can be so helpful in being with that and working with shame but yeah I would love to hear how you work with these together yeah um it, from a philosophical standpoint right so yoga isn't just movement, right? Yoga is, um, it's a lifestyle. It's a philosophy. It's a way of looking at the world. It is, um, it's a way of life. And one of the things that the yoga sutras tells us is that, um, our minds are not really our own, at least not at first, uh, yoga, chitta, yoga, chitta, vritti, nirodha, which means yoga is the stilling of the kind of spinning of the mind, right? So, um, and in the yogic sense, the mind also kind of means a lot more than that, right? So it's not, I mean, like, yes, it's the mind, but it's also the emotions and the body and all of these things that kind of spin out of our control. Um, you know, we talk about in the yoga world, um, Picking out of samskaras, like samskaras are our patterns. They're these cyclical things we get caught in, right? That like we seem to have no power to overcome, right? They just continue to happen. Um, and I'm, I'm sure everyone listening can, can kind of see in their lives where these sort of cyclical things have come in like, oh, you know, maybe it's a different time or a different place or different people, but something about this situation feels very similar to other situations that I've been in, or I've had this same thought, or I've had this same feeling, or I've made these same uh, movements or actions over and over and over again. This is just kind of what I do. And that's kind of what yoga talks about when we talk about the samskaras. And we are, yoga says that we're, we're trapped by our samskaras. We're trapped by these unconscious patterns. And um, we engage in the practice of yoga, which is asana practice, which is pranayama practice, which is meditation, which is lifestyle adjustments, right? We practice all of these things in order to be free of our samskaras. Um, and the way that I kind of teach these things together is that 
the any like yes it's super helpful to know that we get caught in patterns and that we have to be aware of our patterns and we have to do these practices to stop these patterns um but most people don't know what their patterns are um and because so unconscious most people assume that their patterns are something different than what they really are and so this kind of lack of understanding or this misperception or this avidya um, from the yogic sense, this wrong perception leads to wrong practice. And so what the Enneagram allows us is this very clear and detailed list of here are your samskaras. Here are the places you will get stuck. Here's the way you will habitually react to things. Um, and it is, it's very accurate. And so by having this like extra layer of insight into our own personalities, into our own ways of thinking, feeling, and taking action in the world, we can more accurately apply our practices in order to actually be free of these unconscious patterns. Um, that's kind of like a high level explanation, <laughs> but essentially it's like from the yogic side, it's like, okay, we know we do these practices in order to be free of these patterns. Um, but what are our patterns? The Enneagram shows us, right? Like the Enneagram tells us, these are the things that we're working on. These are the things that we need to be aware of. These are the things that are going to derail us. These are the things that are going to, we're going to think they're a great idea, but they're always going to end up in a bad place, right? Like we know, we know that this is how this is going to end. Um, and then kind of from the Enneagram side of it, it's like, okay, if you're coming from the Enneagram and you have um, studied and you know all these things about yourself, right? There's a real depth of self-understanding. Um, that literally doesn't matter at all if you don't ever do anything to change it. So it's like awareness is great and awareness is um, the first step and it's absolutely necessary and it's only the first step. So when you're coming like, you know, kind of bridging that gap between the yoga and the Enneagram worlds, it's like the Enneagram, the, the yoga world needs some more refined insight and needs a tool to make that easier. Um, the Enneagram world needs these embodied practices in order to start experiencing the real change that the Enneagram offers us. Without it, you're you're thinking about all these things, right? Like, oh, well, I do this or I do that. And, huh, yeah, I see myself in that. But there's no real movement. There's no real change. You just stay the same. But our yoga practice actually helps us to work through these things. Yeah, and <laughs> I feel called out right now because... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I feel like everything I've read about my type I've been like whoa what the fuck but then I kind of like black it out because it's <laughs> like oh I'm like oh yeah that's so me shuts the book sets it off to the side yeah that's literally it I'm like oh yeah that's really me okay time to do something else <laughs> yeah well and you know that's so much part of the process too right that like like I said the Enneagram doesn't pull any punches and as you're learning about your type um it's painful like if you're not like squirming in your chair at least a little bit you aren't you aren't you either aren't seeing yourself clearly or you're not you're, you don't have the right type mm -hmm. right like um and there is kind of a process to read this oh shit that's totally me i'm gonna have to set this to the side while I digest it, right? While I become more and more open to seeing the reality of how that plays out in my life, becoming more and more open and able to not just like see how it plays out, but to see it playing out, like to watch it in real time. Um, and it, it can be a really painful process. Um, you know, it's difficult to move out of our patterns, but in the same way, like so is yoga. Like if, if anybody's ever suffered in half pigeon, it's like, you know, oh, this is like not, this is not comfortable. This is not warm and fuzzy. It definitely can have those aspects to it. But, you know, the real work is coming when we're, when we're stepping outside of our comfort zone, which is obviously by name, 
uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so you have to, you have to give yourself enough space in that process to be like, Oh, I see this, this is uncomfortable. Maybe I need to take some time and like sit with it, but then hopefully you can come back to it and be like, all right, I'm really ready to like reckon with this difficult part of what's coming up. Yeah. That's up next for me. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know what? It's going on all the time for all of us. <laughs> yeah. Past the reckoning part, you just get more to reckon with. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, can you tell people how they can figure out their type? Yes. Like a quiz online, but then I also heard have heard people say like you can figure it out from like like reading and maybe a quiz isn't the best way. So yeah, how can people figure out their type? Yeah, um, you know I know a lot of people talk about um, talk about tests, talk about quizzes, right? Um, I think it's really important to know that when we talk about the Enneagram, we're talking about um, something a lot deeper than behavior. And because we're talking about things that are much deeper than behavior, tests are fairly inaccurate Um, only because it's so difficult to test for motivation, right? So if you don't, if you aren't already sure of what your motivation was, it's going to be difficult to tease that out by looking at your behaviors because two people could do the exact same thing for completely different reasons. Mm. Um, And and that's, I feel like something that's really important for people to understand. Now, tests aren't bad, but they, um, they're, they're definitely not definitive by any stretch of the imagination. They're not um, the be all end all Um, for most people. Um, reading through short descriptions of the types can be enough to see where you land, right? Like often if the descriptions are detailed enough or good enough, you can um, see yourself in in those descriptions. Like, oh, like, yeah, these three kind of sound like me, but this one really sounds like me. Um, and again, there's going to be some difficulty in that there's going to be some discomfort in that right like I always tell people like yeah if you can really um if you really identify with the positive aspects of several types like that makes sense like we all want to see ourselves as good right um we don't we're we're not necessarily super stoked on seeing the parts of ourselves so like yeah we're going to identify with the good parts of all the types like oh yeah I'm that I'm that I want to be that Oh, that too. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, definitely like that. Um, but it's really, um, more times than not, it is, it's the negative aspects that help us really get clear on what type we are. Right. Because you don't want to identify with the negative aspects of all the types, but there's that one that you're like, oh yeah, I do that. I do that piece. Um, I don't like that I do that piece, but that I do that. Um, and now for some people, that isn't always the easiest way to discover their type, right? Like I definitely recommend do a little bit of reading um, and and see what comes up. I, I always suggest people listen to panels. Um, a panel is where several people of a single type get up and share about their experiences, like they answer questions. And more times than not, will really resonate with their type when they see them up on the panel. Um, because it's like, you can see kind of the depth and the nuance of the type, the, all the different ways that the type can kind of manifest in a person. Because even if we're the same type, we could be wildly different, right? Like there's lots of room for that kind of variation. Um, but when you listen to a panel, you start to see those threads that like tie these people together. Like this is what it is to be this type. Um, and if after like listening to some panels and after, you know, doing a little bit of reading, you're finding that um, you're still not super clear, uh, then I always suggest a typing interview. There are lots of really talented professionals who um, can kind of help you through this process of self-discovery um, where 
a test kind of has you punch in answers and then kind of spits out a response. Um, a typing interview is a really wonderful space for you to kind of get to explore yourself with somebody who can create a container and can um, do enough reflecting back of what you say and do and how you share um, that allows you the space to, to see yourself more clearly. Um, there, are, there are lots of, obviously I do typing interviews, but there are lots of people um, who are certified professionals who do this kind of work. And it's really, um, it's really, really valuable because I mean, not that there's anything wrong with mistyping. I don't think if you think you're one type and you do a lot of work around it and then you realize that you're a different type. Like, I don't think like the work you did earlier was in vain or like goes down the toilet or anything like that. Like the work is the work. Um, and if you discover you're a different type later on down the road, then like, cool. Like you're just continuing in the work. Um, that being said, being accurately typed is very, very helpful and helps to prevent kind of reinforcing that that are actually doing harm to ourselves and to other people. Yeah, so that's kind of always my thing. It's like you can do a little bit of reading if you are still not having trouble, like still not clear. Um, watch some panels, listen to some interviews of people from the, that type. Uh, and then if you're still not clear, like reach out and do a typing interview. But I would always say get to the typing interview sooner rather than later. Like don't study the Enneagram for like six years and then do a <laughs> typing interview because then you're just going to give yourself some sort of complex. Like you're just going to make it harder. Um, you know, allow yourself, you know, allow yourself a couple months. And if after a couple months you're not clear, then yeah, reach out to somebody um, and, and get that kind of extra support. And I know some people who have taken years to discover their Enneagram type. Um, which, you know, can be part of the process for some people. Um, but, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But I always say, you know, like, get the support first before like really engaging in this journey of finding your type. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I would love if we could, if you're open to it, kind of use you as a little case study. Yeah. You said you're an eight, like what that process was like of figuring that out for you and maybe some patterns or motivations that come with yeah um, you know I shared earlier when I was like introduced to the Enneagram um, a friend of mine you know typed me he was like you're such an eight which in the Enneagram world is a huge party foul don't do that <laughs> like everyone listening right now I know you got really excited about the Enneagram I know you're about to go buy some books <laughs> don't start typing other people. Don't like walk up to people and like, oh, you're such a one or that's such a four thing to do. Don't, don't do it. D don't, please don't for the love of God, don't do it. Um, my friend typed me, it was all in good fun. And, you know, we were able to really talk about it and have a, a really like conversation about it, um, which softened that blow, right? Because immediately I thought it was like an insult, right? Um, and if it's like you tell someone, oh, you're such a, that's such a seven thing to do. And they go home and they like research like what a seven is. Yeah, they're going to see like all the great things about a seven, but they're also going to see all the awful things about a seven. And they're going to be like, that person thinks I'm all these things. Well, fuck I'm them. a seven. So I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? To like have somebody be like, oh, you're such a this. And you go and you read all the like shitty things about that type. And you're like, oh my God, like this is how this person sees me. I don't know if I can be friends with them anymore. It's kind of an extreme example, but all that to say, don't type people because it's not nice and it's not helpful. Um, and you could be wrong. Like just because you see certain things does not mean you know what's going on underneath the surface. Yeah. Um, you know, and my friend who typed, you know, typed me was really open to that. He was like, yeah, I, I said these things, do a little bit more exploring, see if that's what really fits for you. Like when I started to get into it, he's like, don't take my word for it. Do the reading, listen to these books and podcasts and blah, blah, blah. And um, there weren't any podcasts, I, but he had, there weren't any podcasts when I learned about the Enneagram, but there was like some like audio recordings of people teaching that like you could buy on the internet. Oh my um, God. <laughs> right. I know it was like real old school. He like gave me some like MP3s of something. And anyway, um, so as an eight, 
you know, he shared with me like, you know, this is what I saw and this is why I said that. And I'm like, okay. I started diving in and, and the more I read, the more I felt called out, right? The more I was like, oh yeah, I do that. Yeah, I do that. I do this. I don't like that I do that. I do like that I do this. Like, this is pretty cool. Okay. Like, yeah, that's me. Um, but, you know, the the eight sometimes is called the challenger or the boss or um, the protector. Um, eights are really, they're kind of, they're they're often like the bully trope right so like this idea that um you know there's some big bad bully on the playground uh who's like you know real tough on the outside but turns out they have a really hard home life and they have you know they have this like really soft um you know squishy center right um or this person who's really gonna like fight for the underdog and who's going to like sacrifice themselves to um, care for the little guy and thing and have, can often have this really uh, rough um, exterior, but there's, you know, again, like that soft, warm heart on the inside. Um, I feel like people understand that trope really well. Um, it's in, in all the movies and whatever, like it's very like present in our society um, so I feel like eights, people have a, an easy time spotting eights sometimes because they have um, a way of being that feels big and larger than life. Um, but really, the, the eights are motivated to protect themselves um, and to be strong. Uh, and in order to be strong, they have to deny their own vulnerability and what what that really means is like deny the way in which things affect them so eights are really trying to be unaffected by the world uh and they're trying to affect the world they're trying to have an impact um and a lot of times they do that richard Rohr is a really popular teacher who talks about the eights um have a need to be against and so eights like to argue eights are not do not shy away from conflict <laughs> in fact sometimes even like conflict um and and eights really i think one of the like defining factors of an eight is that like whatever it is that they want or are interested in they just sort of they go at it 110 percent, and they don't really care what happens in the meantime, right? Like they're, they're not really, um, I'll speak for myself in pursuing the things that I've pursued. I've not always been very aware of how that affects other people. Um, I, not only have I not been aware, I haven't really cared about how that affects other people. Um, right. So when you shut down your own vulnerability, you shut down your connection to other people. And so relationships can be difficult. Um, one of the things, you know, there are, there's lots of things we could talk about with each type, but every type has what's called a fixation or like kind of uh, an, a mental habit um, and a habit of attention is what some schools call it. And uh, for the eights, that is like objectification. So it's like, even with, even in relating to people, it's like, we can't see people as people. We see people as projects or we see people as obstacles or we see people as objects. Right. Um, and as you could imagine, that doesn't lead to very deeper fulfilling relationships. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is actually what eights want. Eights kind of core fear is the fear of being betrayed. And so what eights are really looking for, if they're honest, is, is people they can trust. Um, but in uh it, while that can be difficult to find right and and it can be difficult for an eight to allow themselves to trust someone else um it's much easier to just treat someone like an object or like a project someone to fix or something to do um instead of seeing their humanity and it's so difficult for eights to see other people's humanity because they don't allow themselves to see their own mm -hmm. um and so that's a lot of the work for the eight is like allowing themselves to see their own vulnerability and how that, um, 
how that creates this really magical space to have those kind of like real and connective relationships, the things that the eights are really looking for. Um, and all that being said, like eights are very strong people. Eights are people who know how to get things done. Eights are people who are deeply, deeply concerned with justice. Uh, these are the people who will stand up and say, hey, this is wrong and we need to do something different. Um, and these are the people who aren't afraid to get their hands dirty in that process. Um, you know, so for as, as many, you know, struggles as AIDS have um, in kind of personal relationships, AIDS, AIDS are almost always champions of people um, in, you know, when they're doing their work and they're engaged, like they want to support and care for other people. Um, sometimes though, that looks uh, maybe a little bit more large scale does like, Hey, let me bring you soup when you're sick. It's more like, I'm going to end, I'm going to work to end white supremacy and, you know, end the patriarchy so that everyone is more free. Um, it's not necessarily, eights are less interested in the warm and fuzzy and much more interested in kind of the, uh, we have a little bit of a hero complex. Like I'll be <laughs> honest. It's like, yeah, I'm gonna, like, I'm, I'm the superhero in this situation. Like I am going to save the world in this particular, um, which, you know, is, is, is great when you can channel it in the right direction. And then it's very, very ungreat when you're not channeling <laughs> it in the right direction. <laughs> Yeah, um, my dad is an eight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like everything you're saying, I'm like, yep, that's, that's him. <laughs> um, thank you for sharing all of that. It's, yeah, yeah, that was really fascinating to, to hear and helpful. And especially how you talked about like that core, I think motivation you said of like wanting to protect the self. Yeah. That, like how tender to, to know that and to be able to feel that in yourself and understand that about yourself. I feel like what you were sharing earlier about having compassion for mm -hmm. yourself, like I felt that immediately when you said that, like, of course, yeah. you know. Um, something in the Enneagram that feels a little confusing to me <laughs> is mm -hmm. the two lines that yeah. they're like different yeah. direct okay yeah maybe you can explain that yeah of course so for people who are listening um when you look at the symbol of the enneagram all of the points around the enneagram um if you look at the point it's made by two lines so like there's one line going one way and one line going another way um and part of what made the Enneagram so powerful and why Gurdjieff was so interested in it is that he saw movement in those lines. And what he talked about in that space was, um, you know, the way energy moves in kind of its natural expression. Uh, and the people who kind of fleshed out the Enneagram of personality saw that movement in our personalities. And so what these lines point to, um, you know, like as an eight, I sit at a certain point on the Enneagram as an eight, um, and I have a line that takes me to point two, and I have a line that takes me to point five. Um, and essentially what that's showing and what that's kind of illustrating is that I have these kind of different moves that happen and I can kind of reach over to these different energies um, at, at different points in my life. Um, I, I teach often that the moves along the lines, which are called the arrows uh, in the Enneagram world, um, I teach that it's very circumstantial. Like you can't consciously move along that line. It's just kind of a product of where you're at in any situation. Um, some teachers originally, the a lot of the language used was integration and disintegration. So as an eight in integration, I would move to two. As integration, I would move to five. Um, the problem with that is that these movements are not um, conscious. They're not intentional, right? So like sometimes they just happen. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but also there are good and bad things about each of these moves. Um, you know, you can be in quote unquote integration at two as an eight and still not be a good person. Um, and you could move to disintegration, you know, quote, as a five, I'm making air quotes when I say that, but y'all can't see that. So um, anyway, I can move to disintegration as a five and have some really wonderful things happen. Um, and so I teach, I teach these lines of movement as vantage and refuge um, because they are really situational. Um, as an eight, when you feel really safe and secure, um, kind of like you're on top of the world a little bit, like you've got some space, you have a vantage, you have a good vantage point on life, you move to that two energy. And now you can have that kind of feeling um, and be really conscious and be really kind and loving and caring and supportive and, and focused on relationship and connective, which are all the kind of positive aspects of type two. Or you can move into this space and be really emotionally manipulative and feel really privileged and entitled, which is the kind of negative side of type. Um, and so it's really not necessarily about, are you moving to two or to five, but are you moving consciously to those places? You know, what, what it was normally seen as kind of a negative move, eight moving to five. Um, you know, I call this the move to refuge. Like you need to maybe retreat or you need like backups, you need reinforcement, you move to this space of refuge. And as an eight, I could move to five and that could be really negative. I could become even more disconnected from my emotions. I could become um, even more isolated. These are kind of negative aspects of type five or I could become much more objective. I could become much more um, able to see beyond my own perspective. I could be more interested in um, other ideas. Um, these are really positive aspects of type five. Um, and so that's the way that I teach it is that it's, it's less about, um, choosing which direction you're going and more about choosing how you're going in the direction that's going to kind of happen regardless. Um, and, and really it's just about, you know, again, the Enneagram is about energy. And we kind of live in one energy and this is kind of where we hang out and this is where you know, we spend most of our time, but we have access to all around the circle. And that's kind of the point is that we can kind of borrow from all of these other energies when we need it. Um, and the, the arrows are kind of our most direct access to these different kinds of energies. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense and feels a lot more like encouraging and empowering than the integration and disintegration. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and to, be, to be totally fair, um, very few teachers, very few, especially of like the major teachers teach with that language anymore. Like even the guy who wrote the book, Don Riso and Russ Hudson, um, Don Riso has since passed, but Russ Hudson doesn't use that language anymore. He's like, Oh, we don't, we don't really use that language anymore. It's not helpful. Um, yeah. so, you know, I've kind of developed a different language. Other teachers have different, like different languages, um, but you can always kind of uh, get it by calling it the arrows. So whether you call it stress or security or vantage and refuge or integration, disintegration, um, we're, we're talking about the movement along the arrows. Okay. Yeah. So then next time I try and talk about it, I don't just have to like make the motion. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> Cause I'm like, I don't know what they are. <laughs> <laughs> Abby, can you tell everyone about your amazing book that's coming out and how they can get in touch with you? Yeah. Um, well, um, you can get in touch with me um, and all the stuff that I'm doing at ConsciousEnneagram.com. Um, C-O-N-S-C-I-O-U-S. Enneagram is spelled E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M.com. Um, it was a really terrible marketing move, branding move on my point, picking two words that were so hard to spell, but I'll link to it. I'll link yeah, to it. <laughs> drop that link where people are going to need it. Um, I forget how to spell it most of the time, but, uh, yeah, conscious Um, if you are interested in learning more about the Enneagram, I have lots of information. Um, I have stuff you can read. I have videos, which I have a podcast. Um, I try to make it easy for people to get the information they need to, 
um, you know, dive in and start using this tool. Um, that it kind of along those lines, um, I wrote a book. I've just finished it. I literally just like sent in the last proofs to my publisher uh, last week, which is pretty exciting. Um, no one could see, like w- like like rubbing my face and like sighing about how much work that was. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's done. I'm excited about it. I'm excited to share it. Um, it's called the Conscious Enneagram. You can check it out on my website. I'll I'll be sure to give you a link as well to drop in this and all that stuff. So if people want to check that out, um, it'll be out on Broadleaf Books on April 27th, 2021. Um, it's up for pre-order now um, on the Broadleaf website on Barnes & Noble. Um, it is also on Amazon, although Amazon's the devil, so please don't. Please Last choice. <laughs> yeah, it's like last choice. Like I think if you're in Canada, I think that might be your only option. And so like, fine, go for it. Like I, I please buy the book, but um, if you don't have to buy it from Amazon, please don't. Um, there are lots of other very easy ways to pre-order and to get it. Um, but essentially it is, uh, it is an Enneagram book, but it's less about the types and more about how do we put this information to work. So a lot of what I talked about earlier with kind of integrating these practices um, and and really engaging in the work and not just thinking about it or talking about it, but actually doing it. um, That's the real thrust of the book. Although the information about the types, it's in there as well. Like I wrote a really hefty appendix, like all the information you need is there. This can be your kind of one-stop shop for Enneagram books um, if if you'd like. yeah, so I'm I'm super excited about that. And yeah, follow me on Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook, all that stuff. Uh, Conscious Enneagram is the easiest way to find me. So everything Conscious Enneagram. <laughs> yeah, everything Conscious Enneagram. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. I mean, I also want to shout out your podcast, which is really cool. And you have panel interviews on there, which I've listened to for my type and did find really helpful. So I was like nodding along when you were talking about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's really great. Yeah, would definitely uh, recommend people listen to that. Um, and I'm definitely going to get a copy of your book too, especially yeah. if it's like not just about the types, but about what you need to do. Because I'm like, yeah, not it's, doing a, it. it's, it's like <laughs> I, I call it kind of Enneagram 2.0. It's like, okay, you have some interest in it. You know what? You kind of know what's going on. Now let's now let's like do what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I promise I write much better than I talk most of the time. (laughs) No, you sound great. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I want to ask you the last question that I always ask on this show. Yeah. Because the name of the podcast is Living Open. What does Living Open mean to you? What comes up when you hear that? Hmm. I I have a kind of like a story. Um, When I crash landed in this small town in Arkansas um kind of all aspects of my life had just collapsed in on themselves and I was not in a good place and um I remember I played music at the time and I was getting ready to play a show but I was um having like an anxiety attack right before the show and um I was like writing in my journal and the thing that kind of came to me was open up and I didn't know what that meant at the time. Um, but through finding yoga, through studying the Enneagram, um, it started to make more and more sense. And I, I really feel like that moment in time was kind of the of this last chapter, this chapter of my life that was really difficult and really hard and, and was of this chapter of my life where I have kind of perpetually been in the process of opening up, of allowing myself to be affected, of, of allowing myself to be seen even in my vulnerability, even in my softness or my squishiness the parts of myself I don't want to show the world um and you know for me it's it's all a part of this process right of allowing myself to be affected allowing myself to be seen um and learning that like I don't have to have control 
over what's going on. Um, now, do I always act in in those ways? No, but it's it's a it's a process and it's a it's a movement in this direction of um, you know doing more, allowing, and doing less controlling. Mm. Yeah. I think I needed to hear that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. I, I really appreciate the question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate this conversation. And yeah, and like, yeah you just have so much wisdom to share. And I'm grateful you took the time to share it here. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me on. This was really, really wonderful. Thank you for being here. I hope this episode helped you learn a bit about the Enneagram or a bit more if you're already into it. Um, definitely check out Abby's work and pre-order their book. I know it's going to be amazing. <laughs> and if you enjoyed this episode, please do tap five stars on whatever platform you're listening on. And you could even write a review if that feels good. It's a really nice way to be in exchange with the show and support an indie podcast. So I really appreciate it. I'll be back next week with another episode. New episodes come out every single Monday if you're new to the show. So subscribe so you don't miss out and stay in touch on Instagram at E-R-Y-N-J underscore or Patreon until then.